the one topic I would like people to write on, and that is to write a comparison of any sort they're interested in of the Kabus Naman, Mirror for Princes, and the Sufi Rule for Novices, which have both been assigned for discussion in section. If you would like to do a paper on a different topic, talk to me about it. Comparison of the Kabus Naman, that's called the Mirror for Princes, and the Sufi Rule for Novices by As-Suhrawardi. I'm not going to describe the differences between the two books, because that would be kind of... Sufi Rule for Novices, an assigned text. Yes, it's for next week. All right, I devoted the last week to talking about infrastructural changes, basically in the 11th century. By infrastructural, I don't mean sewers and roads. I mean the climate and the basic economic concomitants of a climatic change. This was probably the biggest... the biggest sort of non-human event of the last couple thousand years of Iranian history. I don't think there is a comparable period of change at the level of climate. What I want to talk about today is the things that happened in the 11th and early 12th century in other dimensions, and explore the question as to how these might be related to economic changes. In talking about the development of an Islamic society in Iran earlier, I focused on conversion, on the gradual emergence of a class of ulama, of religious specialists, on the growth of cities, and on the culture that these new and growing Muslim cities in Iran gave rise to. And I stress the fact that Iran is, in cultural terms, from, say, 800 until 1100, the most dynamic area of the caliphate. With the change in the economic and climatic conditions in the 11th century, one would expect there to be perceptible changes at a cultural level, and I've already mentioned, of course, a basic political change, and that is the coming of Turkish power to Iran and the creation of a Turkish dynasty. There is a tendency among historians of Iran 
to ascribe change to the Turks. Uh, not always uh, in a favorable uh, manner. Uh, and what I am more uh, inclined to uh, to think is that the, the very pronounced changes of the 1000s and the early 1100s have more to do with um, with the economic infrastructure than they do simply with the change in who the political ruler is because one thing that Hossein Kamali talked about was how there had already been a, um, uh, a variety of political changes uh, in the 800s and 900s as uh, one dynasty would come to power in one area, one in another area. And in addition to the four most important Iranian dynasties, the Samanids, the Safarids, the Buyids, uh, and the Tahrids, uh, you had a, a number of, small, of lesser warlords who either would seize power temporarily or would seek to seize power, so that there had been a, uh, a political contest going on for uh, 100 years, 150 years, uh, prior to, to the, the alteration in the climate. Uh, and indeed, one of the things that is most striking about the coming to power of the Turks in the 1030s under the Seljuks is that political uh, discord uh, diminishes at the level of state actors. That is to say, the Seljuks uh, from 1036 onward are so strong militarily that they don't have any major, uh, major competitors. So of a period where you don't have fights between Sephards and Samanids or Buyids and, uh, and Samanids and so forth, but rather you have one empire, uh, and it's usually referred to as the Great Seljuk Empire, uh, and it has, it's ruled by three people uh, in succession, and then it begins to, uh, to go downhill uh, in the early 1100s as you get some uh, falling apart within the Seljuk family. So that, uh, in a sense, even though you have a different uh, ethnic identity for the rulers, uh, political contestation at that level, uh, the level of the empire, uh, diminishes. Uh, political contestation at a more local level uh, doesn't appear to diminish in the same, uh, in the same sense. The, I've mentioned before that you have factional infighting that increases among religious social factions, primarily in cities. Uh, and you do have a development that is apparent in the 1100s, though not in the 1000s so much. Uh, and development appears to be a, an abortive movement toward having city-states. In other words, there are uh, two or three cities in three or four, I guess, in Northeast Iran and Central Asia that begin to have local uh, political power uh, that is subordinate more often than not to the Seljuks or some other state, but it really is based upon the resources of, of the city. So some cities become uh, violently riven by factionalism, other cities manage to hold things together better on a local basis. The, um, 
the countryside, as one would expect, uh, becomes a less secure place with the decline of agriculture uh, and an increase in nomadism. And one of the indices of that is the fact that the most common word for a rural uh, gentry, a landlord, a, a, you know, a, a substantial rural landholder, uh, and this is a word that is present from the very beginning of the, uh, of the Arab conquests uh, and is taken to, to mean, well, this is just the standard word for a, uh, for a minor aristocrat with a country seat. Uh, this word, dehkan, um, disappears in the course of the 10 hundreds. So that in the 11 hundreds, you rarely find uh, this word being used. Uh, and there's no clear word to replace it. And yet, as a category of society, the Dachans were clearly still important in the year 1000. One of the indices of that is the fact that the Shah Nameh, the Book of Kings that is composed uh, by Ferdowsi around that time, uh, is drawn in substantial part from the uh, from the ballads and legends and traditions that were preserved by the Dachans. So they get mentioned uh, as sources for the stories in the Shah Nameh, and then 100 years, 150 years later, uh, that social class seems to uh, seems to be gone. Uh, Presumably, this is a, a, a consequence of the uh, of the shift in the countryside and the um, in in economic matters and the decline of agriculture. The I want to talk about the factions. Um, as I mentioned before, these factions are visible in the 900s, uh, and they are also they often. Um, are identified by uh, legal categories, uh, legal schools, and the legal schools uh, go back uh, in principle to the 800s. Those are current, though there is currently a good deal, you know, scholarship um, querying whether Islamic law really is um, uh, well developed in the 800s or whether uh, the development of these schools is a phenomenon of the 900s with um, uh, origins projected back a century or more earlier. Uh, the basic texts that get ascribed to the, uh, to the major founders of these laws are often, uh, of these legal schools, uh, often are not um, in evidence from early manuscripts, but come out in later manuscripts. So there's some uncertainty about the exact timing of Islamic law, but the factions get referred to by a variety of sources uh, apart from uh, from legal sources, and uh, the factions appear to be um, uh, to be fairly clear. Uh, I characterized uh, the main factions uh, as two. Uh, one of them, uh, normally called the Hanafis, uh, and the other, normally called the Shafis, uh, and these are both Sunni uh, 
they are the name of they are the names of law schools. Uh, they appear uh, not everywhere, and sometimes uh, a, geogra a geographer will say the factions in such and such a town were not based on law school, but on this quarter against that quarter. So it's not clear the degree to which law is central to these things. But what I was trying to argue earlier, along, uh, earlier on is that if you look at the families and the individuals who, uh, who are identified with certain of these schools, uh, you'll find that they seem to have a number of attributes in addition to legal identity that, um, that are striking. And I mentioned that uh, the old um, ascetic tendency continues among the Hanafis. Among the Shafis, you have a large expansion of Sufis. Uh, it's extremely difficult to find any Hanafi who is a Sufi. Uh, there are Hanbalis uh, who are Sufis, not, probably not as many as the Shafis, uh, but the Hanafis uh, are not uh, Sufis. <coughs> then you have the issue of theology, which I have done my best to avoid talking about. Uh, uh, the Hanafis seem to be the school in which you find uh, pretty much all of the Mu'tazilis, although you also find them among the Shiites, and the Shafis, and the school where you find uh, most of the people who are Ashari's. Uh, what do these words mean? Uh, the word Mu'tazili, uh, the, the, the notion of a Mu'tazili theological school is much older than the Ashari, and uh, goes back to the, uh, you know, to the year 800 or so. Uh, and it was a, an interpretation of Islamic theology that uh, is described normally as rationalist, the application of reason to matters of faith. And today you have a number of people in different uh, Muslim communities, including in Iran, who are who advocate a return to a Mu'tazili thinking. Yeah. But is it Mu'tazili part of the, uh, the Shia school of thought in Iran? So why would that sort of be like a return to it? Uh, the Mu'tazili, uh, there are many Shiites who are Mu'tazilis, but there are many Shiites who are not Mu'tazilis. So it's not a, it's not identified with or originating from Shiism, but it is associated with uh, kind of mainstream uh, Shiite groups. Uh, what is striking about the Mu'tazilis in their uh, advocacy of reason is that they take uh, logic or reason to be the best tool for interpreting verses of the Quran. And in using this tool, uh, several particular issues became heated matters of debate and they become associated with, uh, with the Mu'tazili school. Uh, one of them, for
for example, uh, was the attributes of God. If God is described as in some fashion that could be interpreted in an anthropomorphic manner, for example, uh, if God is described as having a throne or a chair, a kursi, uh, there were people who read the Quran and said, if God has a throne, then God has a butt to put on the throne. Because why would he have a throne if he doesn't sit on the throne? And there were other, uh, there were other people who said, that is disgraceful and blasphemous. Uh, we cannot, we will not talk about God's butt. Uh, and you can, you can see why they would feel that way. Um, and so they would, uh, they would say, therefore, things that imply anything anthropomorphic about God should be interpreted as um, metaphorical. Uh, and this is your way of getting around it. So when you read the Quran, you don't necessarily read it literally, but you read it figuratively in those places where it doesn't fit your assumption about God, namely Plato's notion that God is a perfectly spherical, invisible thing floating somewhere uh, in the universe. Uh, now that one is pretty straightforward. Uh, the uh, using rationality to try and get around the uh, uh, the idea of God having human or humanoid attributes. Uh, there was a uh, another one that was somewhat uh, less obvious, and that had to do with the question of justice. Uh, justice is idle and uh, God is described in the Quran in a number of verses uh, as uh, having justice as one of his attributes. Uh, the reason that became a debated issue uh, was because of the question of uh, free will and predestination. Uh, if God knows that you are going to sin and that your sins are going to doom you to, uh, to hellfire, then what is just about that? On the other hand, uh, if you are entirely uh, free to do what you want, and then judge, then God will judge you uh, at the end. Um, well, does that mean God doesn't know what you're going to do? That, that God is not omniscient? So the Maltesiles came down in favor of justice uh, and in favor of free will. And when their, uh, when their opponents uh, said that, uh, you know, there are other verses of the Quran that suggest that your, uh, your fate is pretty much predetermined, they said, well, that is uh, fatalism. And they said fatalism is a heretical viewpoint. Uh, these debates are paralleled in Christianity. Uh, but they're fairly obvious debates that you get from the notion of, of God in, in, uh, in Scripture. Was it that there, did it, like, school fight ever emerge, just trying like, to take the middle ground? Well, yes, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, just quickly, I'm sorry. Uh, so they do incorporate you know, platonic and Aristotelian. The, 
the Mottesi-Lee notion of rationality seems to presume a Hellenistic background and some sort of logic. The people who were most opposed to the Mottesi-Lees were not the Shafi'is, but rather the Hanbalis. They took a position that was much more a literalist position. They said that if the Quran mentions a throne, then God sits on the throne. And they disputed the rationalistic interpretations of the Mottesi-Lees. By the 1000s, the Mottesi school is no longer called Mottesi-Lee. It's called the Justice School, the Methodal Amr. In the early 800s, you had a major issue on the issue of the attributes of God, but by the 1000s, justice had become versus free will, free will versus predestination had become a more of a cutting edge argument. The third argument that was prevalent in the debates in the 800s and that subsides later is the issue of whether or not the Quran was created. This is where the Greek influence was most apparent because in Greek neoplatonic thinking, God speaks and God's speech becomes a metaphor for God's creation. So God's word, logos, is actually what creates the universe. But God has to exist before he can speak in a Greek definition because if God and God's speech were co-eternal, then you have two gods. You have God and you have God's word. So they said that logically, you have to assume that God's speech comes into existence as an act of God that is subsequent to God's being. Now, logos may have been the Greek word for the divine word, but the Muslim word was Quran, which means recitation. That is God's speech. So this was a really, really difficult issue because it suggested that the Quran is not eternal, but that the Quran comes into existence in some fashion after God's being, or after God is there as a being. And this was called the doctrine of the created Quran. For the Hanbalis, this was an extremely offensive view. They said that it diminished the Quran by making the Quran contingent upon God's chattiness. And they said the Quran is eternal. And the neoplatonic thinkers, people influenced by neoplatonic thought, said no, you had to have a God before God could speak. Now, 
Uh, this became a flashpoint in the 830s when you had one caliph uh, followed by uh, his brother and his brother's son who declared that nobody should be allowed to hold any position in government or in a mosque unless they affirmed uh, that the Quran was created. So the Mu'tazili doctrine was established by El Ma'un Uh, as the official doctrine of the Abbasid Caliphate. And for about 30 years, there was an inquisition that insisted on the Mu'tazili viewpoint. And this inquisition was called the Mihna. Uh, the inquisition failed. Uh, we know most about it in Baghdad, where there were certain... Uh, figures who went to jail and even suffered execution uh, for refusing to accept the view of Al-Ma'mun. Um, but we have lesser information about places like Egypt and Isfahan. Uh, so we know that there was an effort to enforce the Mehta uh, broadly. The people who led the opposition to this declaration of a of an official theology by a caliph were the local ulama. And this really is, is the uh, most dramatic point at which um, the, uh, the ulama uh, collectively, but not well, collectively in the sense that the ulama is where you had the locus of resistance, but they were not holding conferences or meeting together. Um, they saw this as a danger to their, uh, to the esteem with which they were held in their communities. Um, presumably there were Mu'tazili ulama who were happy about it, but, uh, but the ulama in general didn't like the idea that the caliph would try and declare what was proper theology. So after 30 years or so, uh, the Mehta was ended, and uh, from that time onward, uh, the question of what constitutes uh, correct theology becomes um, drifts away from the caliph and becomes more a question of the uh, balance of power among the ulama in your own community uh, and the factional divisions uh, uh, evolve uh, from that. Um, there never is another mecca. Yeah. Pardon? The people who were against the Mu'tazili view? The ulama who were against the Mu'tazili view uh, clustered around Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who is the founder of the Hanbali school, who takes a literalist view of the Quran and who thought that the Quran was eternal. Uh, and so it's the creation or uncreation or eternity of the Quran that is a flashpoint. But that's only, that's just sort of the, the signature item in the dispute. Isn't that sort of, you know, shirk, in a sense, saying that the Quran is like co-terminous or well, co-eternal with God, in a sense? You're, if you're, that is what the Motezalis argue, is that if you have, uh, you know, if God and the Quran are co-eternal, that is associating something with God, 
which is shirk, which is a, uh, a heresy, uh, an association. And therefore, they said that the, uh, there's a reason the Bortazilis thought they had the high ground on this. Because if you had a co-eternal, uh, uh, if God and the Quran were co-eternal, then you had two, two deities. The literalists simply thought that was baloney. Given the stress that Islam places on monotheism, uh, and of course the privileged position of the Quran, is there a way, I mean, how far back can we look in the history of the Quran to see this sort of privileging of the Quran as, as being so important to be co-eternal with, with the Creator himself? Is my question clear? Yeah, uh, the people who argued for the eternity of the Quran did it on the basis of Quranic verse. Uh, they weren't inventing something. Uh, they felt that the Quran uh, was eternal because all of the stories about the messengers would talk about how the Quran is unchangeable, it's always God's message, and they simply were offended by the idea that somebody would say that there had been some moment at the beginning of eternity when there was no Quran. Um, but I think a distinction needs to be made between the word and the Quran. You, you're making a distinction between the word and the Quran that is not the distinction that was made at that time. I mean, you can argue this uh, you know, theologically uh, elsewhere uh, because this is the way it was seen at the time. But as I say, it's, a, uh, it's not clear uh, whether the Mithna and the, uh, the opposition between the Caliph and the Ulama was exclusively on the matter of, of, of theology, theology or whether it was also the question of you know, who determines what Islam is. No. So what form did the Quran exist in before Muhammad was born? Uh, the Quran is God's word that is with God. It was just it hadn't been written down? It had been delivered orally by a sequence of messengers. And then the people who had uh, received God's word uh, had sometimes written it down, but had they proved to be uh, poor stewards of the word. So the Jews had heard... God's word, and God's word that came to the Jews through Moses was what is in the Quran. And the same thing about God's word that came to the Christians uh, through not the words of Jesus, perhaps, but uh, the life of Jesus. It's, they're, it's pretty vague. Um, but they said it's all the same message. But only the version of it that comes in Arabic through Muhammad is the full and complete message because people who received it earlier uh, distorted it, edited it, and um, you know, they lost the essence of what God's word was. There are some people who would say that that by God's word, um, the distinction you're talking about, uh, there is the notion of a an eternal Quran or a semi-eternal Quran in God's mind that may take different forms uh, verbally when it is delivered, but um, that didn't convince me very much because the Quran itself has a verse saying that Muhammad says, I, you know, this is being delivered to you in, uh, in clear Arabic uh, with the notion that if the Quran is in any other language, it's, it's not clear. In other words, God's holy word is in Arabic. Um, now, these debates... Uh, were long passed by the uh, uh, by the ten hundreds, but the 
the dispositions that arose from the debates were still there. And one thing you can say about the about this faction, uh, the Hanafi, Mortezili, um, uh, Zohad, or uh, uh, faction, uh, is that it is older than the other faction. And this raises a possibility, which I explored in, uh, uh, in my book on the view from the edge, that, the, uh, that it is simply the process of conversion that fuels the, the difference between the factions. Because the people who converted to Islam earliest were not necessarily people of uh, the highest status. And as a conversion process proceeded, and it became inevitable or seemingly inevitable that Iran, that the entire land would become a, la a Muslim land, that people of higher status who converted later uh, became uh, envious or they wanted to contest the positions of leadership held by people who converted earlier. So that the, the tendencies of Sufism, Shafi law, and Ushery theology, which I will get to in a moment, uh, these are later arising uh, positions. The Shafi law school is the latest one to develop. Uh, Sufism is, uh, develops late. Uh, the Ushery school of theology develops late. So this would suggest that what you have is a contest in which um, legal doctrines and theological doctrines and so forth are uh, embedded in a different sort of dynamic that has to do with uh, early believers versus later believers. Reinforcing this interpretation was the fact that the Hanafis, the Hanafi school, seems to have been much more wedded to the, uh, to the use of Arabic uh, as the sole language for religion, whereas the use of Persian for religious purposes seems to arise mostly in the, uh, in the Shafi school, and particularly in the form of, of, uh, of Sufi writings, uh, which would suggest that the, uh, that the Shafis were more attuned to the, uh, to the Persian Sensibility and the Hanafis were more, uh, were, were more elitist and more uh, attached to the idea that you should have uh, an Arab-oriented um, uh, religious community. There are many minor differences between the law schools that may have been major at the time. For example, the Hanafis maintained that in every, in any city, you could only have one. Uh, congregational mosque. This is the mosque where uh, on noon prayer on Friday um, uh, you have prayers said uh, by um, a speaker called a khatib uh, the khatib would uh, call down prayers for the ruler and uh, you would also have a sermon given by the khatib called a khutbah. Uh, the Hanafi said you could only have one mosque and they controlled it. So the Shafi said, no, you can have more than one mosque. So that you get a number of new mosques being developed, particularly in the 10 hundreds, uh, sometimes even in the 900s. Uh, 
and you begin to have a, in some places, a, um, uh, a question of who controls which mosque. Uh, the Hanafis wanting a, a narrower uh, control, the Shafis a wider, uh, you know, an alternative, um, uh, you know, institution that they could control. The uh, there were certain offices, uh, such as being the khatib, that were um, in the gift of a ruler or of a local governor or whoever. I mean, if you only have one mosque, that's a congregational mosque. Then you have one khatib, and somebody appoints that khatib. In the same vein, you have one person who's the judge. and there may be subordinate judges in a large community, but those subordinate judges will be appointed by the chief judge. And the judgeship was in the control of the, uh, uh, of the ruler. Uh, you also um, uh, had a couple of other offices that are somewhat vaguer, like that of the, the head man of a town, the Ra'is, but we don't know a whole lot about how the Ra'is functioned. But in any case, um, who controlled these posts within the factional setup uh, could be fairly important. Uh, in the city that I know best, which is Nishapur, uh, the office of judge is held by Hanafis for you know 200 years, and all and they're all in the same family. Um, you have one family of judges. It seems to me inconceivable that you had a series of caliphs who intervened and appointed a judge, and they just always happened to choose someone from the same family. Uh, but rather, this was a, uh, a point of control for the Hanafi faction within Nishapur, and the Shafis didn't have enough uh, clout to get the judgeship out of their hands. So, you know, the issue of theology and creativeness of Quran and so forth. Um, can't be assumed to be the the sole uh, points of uh, point of dispute, uh, but rather you have other social forces that are involved that are extremely difficult to um, uh, to uh, disentangle uh, from uh, reports that rest almost entirely on religious matters. Uh, the Ushery school uh, provides a particularly interesting. Uh, example of this. There was a man named um, Al-Ashari. He lived in Baghdad in the 800s. He was a Hanafi. And then he he shifted his allegiance. Hmm? They claim that he saw a dream. You may have seen a dream, but everybody sees a dream. Yes. Uh, in any, but in any event, he ended up in a position where he had a, a, a view that was not the same as the Motezili view. And then he had one follower, and that had another follower. Throughout the 900s, we don't know much of anything uh, about the Usheries. We have the names of his major followers, and they're half a dozen uh, distinguished people, 
And then in the 10 hundreds, uh, you start to get a number of extremely important usheries. And they're all related to each other. So that if you, if you make a list of all of the prominent usheries of the 10 hundreds, uh, you can fit them onto a family tree. They were all the brothers and the cousins and the uh, brothers-in-law and so forth uh, uh, within one family in the northeastern city of Nishapur. Now that that becomes rather interesting because uh, prior to that time, the origins of the law schools, the origins of the Motezili uh, theological position and so forth, all these things were happening in Iraq. But now in the 10 hundreds, uh, the locus of, of religious dynamism is shifting out of Iraq uh, into other areas, and particularly into uh, northeastern Iran and, uh, and into Central Asia. You had another man uh, who works in Central Asia who has views very similar to those of El Ashri, but is less well known, named Maturidi. But it, I'm not interested so much here in, in who these people were and exactly what their views were, so much as where was the, where was the dynamic uh, shifting. And Iraq was no longer the place where new ideas about Islam were originating. New ideas about Islam uh, were originating in more outlying areas that, had, uh, that were developing locally based Muslim communities through, through conversion. Uh, this, this idea that you have uh, uh, a, a fringe of society or an edge uh, that uh, becomes uh, fruitful and dynamic in the process of conversion is something that I've argued in my book on the view from the edge. Uh, the Usher Review attempted to compromise between the Motezilis and the Handelis. Uh, their notion was that we know logic as well as anyone, and in fact we know it so well that we can support any literalist viewpoint with some sort of logical um, uh, explanation. And the logical explanations sometimes seem uh, rather strained. Uh, one of the ones that they became particularly associated with was not an old one like the creativeness of the Quran or the attributes of God, though they had views on that that go back to El Ashri himself, uh, but rather the question of miracles. Uh, the Motazilis are not very, uh, very strongly oriented toward miracles uh, because there's a, there's a logical problem with miracles. Like, how can they happen? Um, a great problem for, for Christians as well as, uh, uh, as, well as, uh, as Muslims. You know, you have a, a belief in miracles because you have miracles that get reported in scripture. So you say, well, there have to be miracles. But how could there be miracles, uh, logically speaking? There is a very uh, strained portion of St. Augustine's um, City of God, 
where he discusses miracles and he says, yes, there are miracles, miracles still happen. And then he gives an example. He says that he knew someone who had a hemorrhoid operation, no anesthetic, and it was really, really, really painful. It took him a long time to recover. And then the hemorrhoids grew back. And he was going to have to have another hemorrhoid operation. And he said, I'd rather die than have another hemorrhoid operation. So everyone in the church prayed that his hemorrhoids would go away. And they did. And now, I, I mean, I'm, I'm no theologian, but to, to me, if that's the best you can do um, to, to argue that you still have miracles, then you're on the verge of uh, rejecting the notion of miracles. All right, miracles for the Montezilles, uh were not a hot item because they, they didn't argue there were any miracles. But for the Sufis, this was important. So the, the issue of miracles arises more as a challenge to this, uh, to this faction than to the Hanafi faction where you don't have any Sufis. Uh, the reason it arose among the Sufis was that you had Sufis who were believed to perform miracles. I mentioned how you know, guy put his hand through his, uh, through his shirt and everyone said, well, uh, incredibly put his hand through his shirt. Um, now, in order to explain this logically, uh, the ushery uh, theological uh, argument went that um, God uh, created the world not at the beginning, winding up the clock and letting it go, but rather God creates the world uh, at every instant, at every atom in time. That, you know, God creates the world and then a nanosecond later he creates the world again, he creates the world again, and he does so uh, habitually. So that, you know, the sun always comes up in the east because that is God's habit. But since you have creation instantaneous at every moment, God could change it. You know, you can have a solid shirt, solid shirt, solid shirt. Oops, his hand goes through the shirt. There's a miracle. And now it's back to a solid shirt again. Uh, that was the logical explanation. As Islamic theology proceeds, you have people closer to the modern period who say that God's habits are what we call, uh, in scientific terms, uh, natural law. And that natural law, uh, I mean, law is, is always a, a problem when you talk about natural law because who enforces the law? Uh, the law is just there. Uh, and um, Muslim theologians say, God does the same thing every time because it is his habit. His habit is observed by us as natural law, but God could, uh, could alter his habit uh, for some reason on some occasion, and that would be an explanation of a miracle that would satisfy uh, the question of, um, uh, of logic and miracles. Uh, interestingly, 
this theological position becomes the standard one for Sunni Islam. Uh, the Mu'tazili position by the end of the 1200s has pretty much disappeared. And the Ashari position, which spreads primarily within the Shafi'i faction, uh, becomes the dominant uh, position. And the person who is most associated with making it the dominant position is a, uh, a scholar, named El-Ghazali. El-Ghazali died in the year 1111, which was extremely convenient of him. Um, uh, he comes from northeastern Iran. He is the only prominent ushery who is not a member of the same family. He studied under everybody in the family, but he wasn't from Nishapur. He was from the city of Tus, which is about 60 miles away. Um, and uh, his writings become the, uh, the standard uh, exposition of Orthodox Sunni uh, theology. He, he started his work in the northeast of Iran in Nishapur, but then he went to Baghdad where he became the head of a medrasa uh, there called a Nizamiya. There was also a Nizamiya in Nishapur, but, and there was one in Tus. He became the head of the Nizamiya Medrasa in Baghdad. And he, uh, he taught there as an Ashari theologian uh, throughout most of his career until he, the, by uh, a miracle, I suppose, he was suddenly afflicted with dry mouth, and he had to stop lecturing because his mouth was too dry for him to lecture. So he retired and then spent a number of years uh, traveling in Syria and elsewhere. And he wrote uh, his most important works after he had retired from teaching and eventually went back and taught in Tus, uh, uh, where he died. Uh, because he is such a famous theologian, it was sort of parallel to Thomas Aquinas in the uh, Western Christian tradition, uh, people have kind of overlooked the fact that in Baghdad, everybody disagreed with him. To be an ushery in Baghdad um, was sort of like, you know, being a Mormon in Boston or something. You know, people really didn't didn't agree with you and didn't think highly of your views. El Ghazali didn't run into so much trouble, but the people who succeeded him, uh, they would come to Baghdad. They would start having giving speeches about uh, ushery theology, and then you'd have street riots. So Baghdad is is torn by factional fighting. Uh, uh, because of this effort to implant an ushery viewpoint in Baghdad. So the rise of the ushery school to be the dominant theology is not easy, it's not uncontested. Most of the opposition, however, came uh, not from the Hanafis, who begin to uh, who ultimately uh, move over to the ushery side, but come from the Hanbalis, who are strong in Baghdad and who are literalists. Um, they, of course, are the law school that survives today in Saudi Arabia, uh, where the Ashari school is, you know, not the favorite school. Um, all right, this is a very... Uh, uh, is that hmm? That's Wahhabism, yes. Um, 
this factional discord uh, was something that was a problem for the Seljuk uh, rulers when they took over in the 1030s. You had factions, uh, you know, factional disputes between the Hanafis and the Shafis, and you had some other groups that were outliers, seemingly less numerous or at least of less uh, prestige, and they also would get into fights over them. Uh, in Iran, uh, in the late 900s and the early 1000s, the most uh, the most important group was the Karamiya. Like El Ghazali can be spelled with one Z or two Zs, uh, Karamiya can be spelled with one R or two Rs. Uh, this appears to have been a, a, uh, a faction primarily among uh, lower social economic uh, strata. Uh, there was a very strong um, uh, opposition to this faction, and the opposition seems to have uh, been partly a class-based opposition, uh, but also objections to the fact that the Karamiya was very active in proselytizing and in spreading Islam. But when the Karamis spread Islam, uh, the Islam they were spreading was not quite the same as everybody else's uh, Islam. We have very little remaining of the Karamis except denunciations by their opponents. But the one or two texts that we have that are genuine uh, Karami texts uh, give you some clue as to why other people didn't like them. Uh, there's one that's a series of stories. Um, one of the stories, just to give you a, a sample, uh, there is a man who is um, a non-Muslim. And for 40 years, he prays to his idol uh, for, for something. And he never gets it. You know, he wants to win the lottery or something. And then he, um, uh, he decides to pray to Allah, and he wins the lottery immediately. And then a good Muslim says to God, why in the world did you let him win the, the lottery the first time he prayed to you um, when I've never won the lottery and I've been a believer in you ever since I was born? And then God says, yeah, but if I didn't answer his prayer, then I would be no different from the, uh, from the idol that he had been praying to. And this was used apparently to, to bring Buddhists into Islam, to say, stop worshiping idols and pray to a God who can actually deliver. But from a theological point of view, whether you are a Mautazali or an Ushery, this was a very unattractive story. First of all, God is chit-chatting with people, which seems a little too anthropomorphic. Uh, and secondly, God is, you know, there's nothing here about justice. Uh, there's nothing here about predestination. It's just God being frivolous. So, uh, so the, the Karamis were not a, um, didn't have much credibility at the, uh, in the medrases. Uh, there were some Karami medrases, but very few. Uh, because they they were 
stretching Islam in ways that the more um, the more learned Muslim scholars found uh, found offensive. But of course, these more learned scholars also found Sufism offensive. The idea that you could follow, uh, that you could pray to to God and immediately uh, get, you know, immediately win the lottery, uh, wasn't clearly distinguished in their mind from the idea that, well, if you hung around and followed the lead of a certain Sufi, that you would have some sort of vision of God. There was no vision of God uh, from the lawyers who were the dominant uh, people in these uh, in these camps. Um, so Islam was beginning to to um, to develop a, uh, a a much more um, sort of polyvalent uh, uh, way of talking about God's relationship uh, to the to the to the individual believer. For Sufis. Um, in the 800s, someone who was a Sufi might have some followers, but we don't know much about the followers. He was mainly known as someone, as I mentioned before, who would have poetic utterances or ecstatic moments or perform miracles, so forth and so on. In the 1000s, you begin to have a few Sufis who have uh, followings in substantial numbers. Um, and they... Uh, you have the seeds being planted for Sufism becoming a fraternal organization uh, rather than uh, simply uh, a, a mystic expression by some, uh, some spiritual athlete of some sort. Uh, rules by which Sufis should live don't come into being until uh, the 1100s and the 1200s. But the notion that you can have a community of Sufis uh, is already beginning to be there in, in the 10 hundreds. And, um, you know, the idea that you have separate uh, communities that don't orient, them, orient themselves to law schools, but rather to, a, uh, to some sort of spiritual guide uh, was, um, was unsettling for many people. Uh, you also have uh, the increasing presence in the 10 hundreds, but rarely mentioned in the 9 hundreds, of um, young men's organizations. Uh, the, uh, the ideal of young manhood, you know, poetry, romance, military, uh, bravery, and so forth, was called futuwa because an individual young man in Arabic was known as a feta, the plural, fitian. Uh, in Persian, you have a parallel term, javan uh, mad, which literally means young, a javan mad man. Uh, you put a long I on the end, javan mad and you get Futuwa, uh, you get the ethos of young manhood. So in both Persian and Arabic, uh, you have the idea that there is a special quality to young manhood. What happens in the 
uh, in the 10 hundreds is that you start to have organizations. Yeah? So I two different words, Javan and Javan married, it's usually written as one word. That means young. That's the same as Futua. Uh, yeah, Futua and Javan Maradini are synonymous. Uh, okay, you have references to uh, Futua organizations, uh, and the Futua organizations become increasingly uh, evident, and they're characterized in cert by certain things. Uh, for example, that you have an initiation, uh, that you have a special kind of costume, that you uh, you do uh, the, the the young guys get together and they do calisthenics together, uh, and in case of unrest, they fight as a militia. Uh, there's no parallel in the early Islamic period, even though the word futua shows up in early Arabic poetry as simply an ethos. But the idea that you have an organization of young men um, is something that doesn't seem to have a precursor. You do have uh, an earlier term, uh, ayar, uh, and in the Arabic plural, it's ayarun. Uh, and you do have bands of Ayarun that show up from time to time and seem to act either as bandits or militia depending on the context. Um, nobody's quite sure who the Ayarun were. Um, uh, some people have argued that they are uh, precursors uh, of the Futu organizations. Some feel that they're quite different. Uh, but they, they appear to be more like bandit gangs. And they appear to be more associated with rural situations than with urban situations. Because the Futu organizations appear to be urban primarily. Um, and to have a, uh, a claim to having Islam as their basis. Whereas the Ayarun appear to be more like organized criminals. Uh, this is not to diminish the Ayarun. There is one point in time when the Ayarun control the entire uh, west side of Baghdad so that uh, the caliph rules on the east side of Baghdad and the Ayarun chief uh, rules on the west side of Baghdad uh, because uh, in the 10 hundreds, uh, Baghdad becomes increasingly a, uh, a declining and contested uh, area of ruins rather than a flourishing city that it was in the uh, in the 800s, um, but the Fatua seem to be uh, to be special uh, because they get merged into the Sufi organizations. Um, there's one uh, one of the most important early Sufi texts that. Um, that is written in northeastern Iran is, by, is a book called the, uh, um, the Risala, or the Epistle, by uh, a man named Al-Kushairi. Uh, Al-Kushairi was the central figure of the family that produced all the Ashari uh, theologians. Uh, and his book explains what Sufism is. Uh, and in his book, 
uh, being a feta is one of the stages of becoming a Sufi. So you have a you begin to have Sufi organizations that are developing a um, uh, really developing a military capacity. Uh, they have uh, groups of young men who will um, uh, be organized and dedicated to a particular uh, point of view. So when we talk about uh, factional infighting, uh, these uh, two organizations play an important role. They're not part of the army. They're not under the command of the ruler, uh, but they are, um, they are organized. Uh, they are trained to some degree. Uh, they still exist to this day so that uh, in Iran, uh, you still have um, places called a, a Zurhaneh, uh, which means a house of strength, Uh, which is de devoted to the ethos of Javon Mardi. And uh, you can go, uh, if you're a tourist, you can go to Tehran and attend a, um, an exercise session of the, uh, at a, a Zurhane. And you'll see that people, the men are wearing um, uh, very, very elaborately embroidered uh, breeches, go from the waist down to the knee. That's the ceremonial garment of the uh, of the fatua, uh, and they are um, likely to be listening to the shahnameh being chanted, uh, and they are swinging dumbbells. Uh, and by dumbbells, I don't mean simply um, you know little things that you lift. I, you know, you have a dumbbell, a handle, be about four feet long and weigh you know 25 pounds. They'll throw them up in the air and catch them and so forth. You'll have, and they'll have collective calisthenics featuring the manipulation of these dumbbells uh, standing in a ring, and it's a very ceremonial sort of thing. These organizations have been around uh, since the 10 hundreds. Um, in other countries, uh, they still continue as well. Uh, and I'm not going into detail, but uh, there's an argument made that when the Lebanese Civil War broke out in 1975 and suddenly every religious group in Lebanon had a militia, uh, that what happened was that the, uh, the, the Fitian that already existed as sort of neighborhood athletic clubs uh, simply turned themselves into militias. Yeah. Uh, the question of a continuity from an earlier period, the, the, the comparison that is usually made is with the circus factions that you had in the Byzantine Empire, so that uh, the chariot races in, or in Constantinople and Antioch and certain other places, they would, you'd have you know, uh, chariot hooligans who would all sit together, they'd all wear the same color jersey, and they would um, you know, scream for their team and beat other people up. And they correlated with religious groups. So you would have the Monophysite 
uh, chariot hooligans would get into fights with the Chalcedonian chariot hooligans. And you have uh, the circus factions become a source of uh, significant uh, urban disorder in the Byzantine Empire. And some people have tried to see, to, to, to see whether they can draw a line from the Byzantine um, uh, factions uh, to the two organizations. It hasn't been very successful. Uh, one scholar has had a little more luck tracing an earlier uh, Iranian uh, source. Um, but again, the data are very, very, uh, a scholar named Angelo Piemontese has written a, uh, an article on the Javan uh, Merid phenomenon that argues that it goes from the Sassanid period. But you simply don't have much evidence for the early Islamic period. But now they show up. And of course, it's related to the decline of the economy, uh, shrinking resource base, factions in cities that are competing with each other to survive, and they have to field um, uh, some sort of force. Uh, and this is uh, the role that they play. So that for the, for the Shafis, they're going to be connected with Sufi organizations. But you can also have the two organizations that are not attached uh, to the Sufis. Um, so the, the emergence of these groups is one of the, um, one of the, the bits of evidence that suggest the, uh, that the economic downturn uh, is leading to, uh, to disorder. And in this disorder, uh, the people who are competing uh, have to have uh, some kind of, of a capacity to, to fight. Um, <coughs> there is a famous incident where one of the Seljuk sultans is on the, has his army on the outskirts of, um, of uh, Nishapur, and he sends in his, his vizier to talk to the head of one of the factions, and he says, you know, go to so-and-so and... Um, and tell him that if he doesn't stop fighting, I will kill him. And um, the, the vizier goes and he comes back and the sultan says, did you talk to him? And he says, yes. He said, I hope you didn't tell him that I would kill him if he didn't stop fighting. He said, no, 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 I sent him your best regards. And um, because the cities could not be ruled unless you had a uh, an, some kind of of working arrangement between the sultan, who had an army out in the countryside made up of tribal warriors, and the factional forces within uh, within the cities. So that in those cities that began to move toward having city-states, uh, the local militia would become a significant power. The city of Bukhara, for a period of uh, two or three generations, seems to have its own local rulers. Same thing seems to happen in the city of Herat. Um, now, all of this... I would argue ties into the uh, to the economic uh, you know problems that Iran was facing at that time. Um, in the uh, 1100s, uh, in the second half of the 1100s, you have an interesting event uh, that kind of highlights these changes. The last effective Abbasid Caliph before the Mongol invasion was named Al-Nasr uh, Lidin Allah. 
generally you just know him as a Nasser. Um, he had, you know, the, the, the Seljuk dynasty had fallen apart with infighting, and he aspired to restore the power of the caliphate uh, because the uh, the imperial uh, uh, the imperial apparatus that had controlled the caliphate through the Buyids and through the Seljuks now that was falling apart, and then Nasser said, uh, let's uh, let's bring power back to the caliph in Baghdad. And he had a, a way to do it. He said, everyone who is holds an appointment from the caliph must become a member of a Futua organization. Um, they have to be a, they have to be initiated in these organizations, and then the organizations together will constitute the power of the new caliphate. Uh, it's as if um, Barack Obama said, let's take the Boy Scouts and turn them into the new state because we can't trust the Republicans. And, but the Boy Scouts, they're loyal and they're, they're good and they're moral and they should be the, uh, we'll send them all to Afghanistan now, and fight for the, for the right. Um, Anasser had himself uh, initiated into a Futur organization, then declared himself to be the chief uh, of the two organizations. And he hired people to write manuals on Futur organizations. So starting in the late 1100s, we begin to have complete texts devoted to um, explaining uh, young manhood as a, um, as a focus of, uh, of Islam uh, under the aegis uh, of the caliphate. So that's the trajectory you have. You have uh, only the occasional mention of two organizations toward the end of the 900s. By the end of the 1100s, 200 years later, the caliph himself is saying, this has become so important. And of course, what made it attractive was that the Futua militias were not part of the army of the sultan. They were not uh, they were not tribal warriors. They were not uh, people who were, they were not Mamluks. They were not warriors at all. But within the cities, they are the people who are capable of, of exerting a certain amount of force. Uh, so that's, you know, what I'm trying to, to get out here is, is, is a, a way of looking at a transition period through the 10 hundreds and the 11 hundreds in which the issue of who is ruling is not the central issue. You have the Seljuk sultans. Seljuk sultans have their army. They fight battles, they win battles. <coughs> they fight among one another. But what's happening in society is, um, is much more urban-based and local and reflective of the economic currents of the time. Um, and when the Iranian and, and is also associated with the diaspora of educated Iranians out of Iran that carried these new practices of having medrases, two organizations, and so forth, <coughs> Sufi organizations into the surrounding territories. So this is a period in which the um, the new image of Islamic society 
that grows up in Iran begins to be generalized over a much, much broader area, and ultimately Ashari theology becomes um, the standard Sunni theology. Uh, young men's organizations become standard uh, organizations. Uh, it's very clear to me, at least, that uh, the Al-Qaeda and other uh, religiously oriented militias today are directly descended from the uh, from the two Futu organizations. They have the same sort of appeal. Um, and so Iran is collapsing to some degree economically within itself, and yet it's a point of enormous influence uh, as the language and the religious institutions spread into, uh, into surrounding territories. And ultimately, they have more influence in the surrounding territories, which are Sunni, than they do in Iran, because Iran uh, takes a turn towards Shiism that, uh, that then separates Iran uh, from the surrounding territories. Uh, so I want to talk uh, about Shiism uh, next Tuesday and uh, show the ways in which that is uh, developing at this point. What are we going to get? Paper topics? Oh, paper topic. Uh, I mentioned that there, the paper, there is going to be one paper topic, which is to